All right, well, good morning, my friends. It's good to see you all. Uh, Today we are continuing on in our sermon series, Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament. So as we get ready to um, open the scriptures and wrestle with them uh, this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, grateful for this chance to be together, uh, to see uh, one another, to um, draw near to one another. And as we uh, gather together today, we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us. And we're grateful for that profound uh, and beautiful gift. And so now as we turn to the scriptures and uh, wrestle with them, uh, we, we yield ourselves to your spirit and would ask that your spirit uh, would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Judges ends like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges ends with a sort of bleak indictment on the nation as a whole. But you might have noticed, we have skipped over an awful lot of the history of Israel from last week unto this week, right? So to take several generations and cram it into about, oh, I don't know, 30 seconds, here we go. So the people of Israel are in enslavement to uh, Egypt, and God raises up Moses to lead the people out of, uh, out of their enslavement to Egypt, the Exodus. Then they wander in the desert for uh, something like 40 years, and then Joshua, another leader who God raises up, leads them into the promised land, this land that God has given to them, and now they begin to live out their, land, their, live out their lives in the land, which brings us to the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is a wild trip if you've never read it. (laughs) Because within the book of Judges, we see what is often referred to as the the cycle of Judges. Because here we have the people living in this land that God has given them, and they're trying to figure out how to do this. And so we see periods of them being faithful and obedient to God, but then we see them starting to get drawn in other directions, and they begin to slip into disobedience and unfaithfulness to God, which, as you can imagine, leads them into all sorts of trouble. And so as they find themselves in trouble, they begin to cry out to God for God to deliver them, and God raises up someone known as a judge who will liberate them, free them, deliver them, and then they begin to live back in obedience and faithfulness to God. And the cycle goes on and on and on throughout the book. The only problem is... The cycle of Judges is actually a bit of a misnomer because it's really more of a downward spiral (laughs) all throughout the book, with each story getting a little bit more destructive and a little bit more depraved until we come to the last three stories that are actually intimately connected. This is how the book of Judges ends. One day, a concubine is out on a journey with her male partner, and they spend the night uh, uh, in a, a, a foreign city together. Well, as they enter into the household of where they're staying, all of the men of the city come and bang on the door and say that they want to see the men of the household. And uh, the men do what men do best here and don't come out, but instead sacrifice this concubine out to this uh, depraved group of men who uh, see the woman, Uh, if you catch my drift on all of this. Well, they come out the next morning and they see that this woman has now been left for dead. And so uh, her male partner uh, distributes her uh, throughout the tribes of Israel as a judgment on the nation of Israel. Story 
one. Story two, well, everybody else catches wind of what has happened, and they realize that all of this took place within the tribe of Benjamin, and so they seek to eliminate and execute the tribe of Benjamin, nearing their almost certain death. Story number two. But then people begin to feel kind of bad about this. And so they decide, well, here's what we'll do. We have this festival coming up where all of these young women will go out into the field at Shiloh where the temple is and they'll begin to dance and do their, uh, their ceremonial dance. But all of the men from Benjamin can hide in the vineyards and they can jump up and snatch all of these young women as their own sort of um, bounty and way of replenishing the tribe of Benjamin. And so we get to a point where we come to this bleak indictment that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's not a good picture of humanity. And maybe this shouldn't surprise us in some ways, right? The book ends with this sort of sense of like, left to our own devices, we can do all sorts of disastrous and destructive and depraved sorts of things. And again, this shouldn't surprise us in any sort of way because we live in an era of things like drone strikes, where there are all sorts of innocent collateral damage for, I'm not actually sure why, We live in a time period where in the newsreels we see men on horses carrying whips, whipping Haitian refugees, trying to find a place where they can flourish as human beings. We live in a time where there is institutionalized and systemic racism, uh, trying to like diminish the image of God in certain human beings in our society. So this sort of bleak indictment (laughs) that the people did what was right in their own eyes probably shouldn't surprise us in any way. What might surprise us, though, is what happens next in the history of the Israelites. Because we come to a book known as 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel opens by telling us about two different characters who are somewhat like contrasting one another. The first character that we're told about is a woman named Hannah. And what we know about Hannah is that Hannah has not been able to have any children. She is what the Bible refers to as a barren woman. Which, for a woman in this time period, would have been one of the most like marginalized, most sort of vulnerable places uh, to be. Because this was a time period where women had like one specific job, and if they couldn't fulfill that, then, well, they could be seen as like... Well, yeah, you get the drift here. Um, so this is, this is Hannah. And so we're told that year after year, she would come with her husband to the temple, and her husband uh, would offer a double offering uh, on her honor because even though he had another wife, he loved her more. <laughs> and so he would offer this double portion with this hope that like, she would eventually have a, ch- a child. And we come to the particular time of 1 Samuel where on this particular year, she is pleading to God in the temple and says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give the son back to you to serve you in your temple. We get this sense that she's this very pious, sort of admirable, sort of um, virtuous woman. And it's as she's here pleading in the temple that we are introduced to our second character, a man named Eli. And Eli is a priest in the temple, which means that he has a sort of well-respected official position of, of power and prestige in society. But the story presents uh, Eli as a bit complex of sorts, right? He is this priest, he's this, this man of God, and yet... He makes some questionable decisions along the way. (laughs) Where we meet Eli is in the temple talking to Hannah, who's crying out to God, and he assumes that she's drunk and kindly asks her to stop. (laughs) He misses out on what's happening in these dynamics here. We're also told later that uh, Samuel's sons are, and I quote, scoundrels. (laughs) They are fulfilling the role of priests and committing all sorts of awful atrocities as they are uh, stepping into this role of priests and helping people conduct their worship. 
so, uh, such scoundrels that uh, there is this judgment against Eli that his household will end and will be discontinued on. So we have these two characters. We have one who's this pious, virtuous, sort of admirable woman who seems to do all of the things right, and yet the, the, the deck is stacked against her. And then we have Eli, this dense sort of man who all of the cards are in his favor, and yet he gets a little careless with them sometimes. It's interesting to note that as the story unfolds, and there are these two sorts of main characters, the story hones in specifically on the story of Hannah. The first chapter and a half or so is dedicated entirely to laying the groundwork for the story of Hannah, which is really fascinating in comparison to the end of the book of Judges, where women are seen as somewhat disposable at the end of the book of Judges. Here, Hannah is seen as the venue of God. That, that God will do something significant in and through her life. And that significant thing that God does in and through her life, of course, is the son that she names Samuel. She, does, she fulfills her promise to God, gives Samuel to the temple under Eli's supervision, gives Samuel, returns Samuel back to God for God's service in the temple. And that is where we pick up our story this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're told now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. So now he's living under Eli's household. He's, he's, he's growing up in the way of being a priest in the temple. And then we're told the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. And we're reminded of the way that the book of Judges ends the sort of bleak indictment on humanity. That rather, humanity had gotten so bad that God had withdrawn God's self from humanity, or humanity had just gotten so incredibly callous that they missed out on the visions and the words of God. We don't know, but at this point, it felt as though the words of God were rare in this day. It it, it feels as though it's like a, a national collective sort of staring at a blank screen with a cursor flashing at you when you have a term paper due tomorrow, right? Like this collective sort of writer's block, this sense that like we don't know the way forward. So it's seen as like this indictment at the beginning of the story, and yet if we read it closely, it's also a big spoiler alert that something is about to change, So as the story continues on, Samuel is sleeping in the temple one day, and he hears uh, a voice calling out to him, saying, Samuel, Samuel. He assumes that it's Eli, because Eli's an old man, and Eli can't see and needs help at night doing all sorts of things. And so he runs into Eli's room, and he says, here I am. And Eli sends him back to bed, and this happens twice now. And I appreciate this as a father of a young child, because at 3 a.m. when I hear, da-da, through the monitor, I grab the monitor and I talk and say, you're fine, go back to bed. Not my best moment, but you try being there at 3 a.m. I don't know that you would do much better, right? So this pattern happens twice. Samuel running into Eli's room, waking him up. And then on the third time, Eli begins to perceive what's happening. Eli senses that this is maybe the voice of God that's waking him up. And he says, Samuel, the next time this happens, say, here I am, Lord. Speak for your servant is listening. So now... Eli is, or Samuel's woken up one more time, Samuel, Samuel, and he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And the Lord comes down to Samuel and says to him, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. 
Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. Well, for young Samuel, (laughs) this is a a bit terrifying, right? (laughs) This is a a bleak indictment now again on his... uh, uh, his guardian here of Eli, and it's a sense that there's a changing of the guard, that this is the end of Eli and his family, that things are about to change, that God is doing something new. And so Samuel wakes up and is a little reluctant to like share this with Eli, but Eli prompts him to, to share. And Eli's response is really fascinating. It's a sense of like resignation of sense, a, a, a bit, right? Like this had already been prophesied to Eli, he already knew that this was happening, And he essentially says, may it be so. We come to the end of chapter 3, this sort of introduction to the character of Samuel. And we're told in verse 19 that as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground, meaning like they came to fruition. All and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So at the end of this introduction to Samuel, we're told that Samuel is a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. Now when we talk about a prophet, we're talking about someone who acts as a mouthpiece of God. As someone who carries forth a message from God for God to the people. And the way that prophets, the the message of the prophets often work is twofold. On the one hand, there's some sort of critique of the status quo. There's some sort of critique of the way that things are, of this established pattern of how things have been. So we talk about that downward spiral of judges. That was the status quo. A prophet would critique that. We talk about, um, uh, in our day, we have drone strikes and border patrol with whips and institutionalized and systemic racism. This is our sort of status quo. Prophets would critique that. For Eli, it was the fact that he had these scoundrel sons and let them get away with it. This was the status quo that Eli was critiquing. That's the first part of their message. The second part of their message is often compelling us and pointing us towards a better, more beautiful, more just future. Um, Now, it's interesting in this story to note who emerges from it as a prophet. Uh, It's important to recognize it's not Eli, nor is it any of Eli's kids. Who emerges as a prophet isn't somebody who comes from this well-established, well-respected, official sort of position of power and prestige. But rather, the one who emerges as a prophet is Samuel, the one who was born of Hannah, the one who was born of the most vulnerable and marginalized in society. And I think that this is such a fascinating observation because I can't imagine a better place for a prophet to emerge from than the most marginalized and vulnerable place in society. Because who is more attuned to critique the status quo, the way that things have been, and to point us towards a better, more beautiful, more just future than someone who is experiencing anything other than uh, the best and the most beautiful and the most just world that we could put forward? I think it's also fascinating to pay attention to the life of Jesus and the detail, the great detail that the Gospels go in to explain uh, Jesus' physical and his social location. 
Because we, we read in the Gospels that Jesus is born to a young, unwed mother. We read that his uh, stepfather is a, a tradesman. We read that he comes from Nazareth, and people say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And we're told that he's born of the Jewish people, uh, living under Roman occupation, with the, the, the knee of the world's superpower pressing down on their neck. And yet we're told that Jesus emerges as like the great prophet, <laughs> the one who critiques the status quo, the one who points us towards a better, more beautiful, more just world that he often refers to as the kingdom of God. Now, I think all of this raises a really important question for us. That is, who are our prophets? Who are the people in our day, perhaps on the margins, perhaps some of the most vulnerable in our society, but who are the people who are uh, critiquing the status quo, the way that things are? And who are the people that are pointing towards a better, more beautiful, more just world for us all? I sat with this question over this past week and really tried to think through who, who I see emerging in this. And one of the, the first uh, names that came to mind was my sons, of all people. <laughs> because I have this habit of when I'm tired, I come home and I just want to veg out and just scroll mindlessly on my phone and you know what he does every time? He comes up and smacks my phone out of my hand and demands attention, the audacity of the kid, right? And I think if I'm willing to pay attention, I think he's critiquing the status quo that this is okay. <laughs> that I can just mindlessly scroll and this is an okay way to decompress. And then he's pointing us towards a better, more beautiful, more just world where, I don't know, a son feels like his dad cares and wants to pay attention to him, right? Who, who would have guessed, right? <laughs> Uh, I also began to think about, um, you remember that, uh, that teenage girl from Sweden who like stood up before the UN <laughs> and called them out and was like, you need to care for our environment because we want a world that's not on fire, right? Boy, she's critiquing the status quo. She's pointing towards a better, more beautiful, more just world. And she's rising up all sorts of young activists to follow in her, uh, in her legacy. Uh, I also uh, started to think about... Um, our uh, black sisters and brothers who uh, have been so incredibly vocal over the last, well, long time, but especially over the last few years, who are critiquing the status quo uh, and saying, like, our society doesn't affirm that black lives matter and pointing towards a better, more just, more beautiful future where we can all affirm without any sort of hesitation that black lives indeed matter. As I sat with this question, I, I also couldn't help but think of like LGBTQ folks who find themselves critiquing the status quo of exclusion and being erased and even like, um, yeah, even, even being like erased from the story and pointing towards a better, more beautiful, more just future where like they can be affirmed and where like their belovedness by God can be seen and known deeply. These are some of the prophets that I've been wrestling with. Uh, maybe, maybe you don't agree, and we can talk about that in just a few minutes. But these are the, the, the people who've been captivating me, who I feel like are, are, are doing a really great job at critiquing the status quo and pointing us towards a better, more beautiful, more just future. And if this is the question that we're asking of who are, the pro who are our prophets, then I think a necessary second question needs to be, when the prophets speak, will we listen? 
If God is willing to raise up individuals in our midst to carry forth a message from God for God to us as God's people, will we listen? And I think if these prophets are coming to us from the margins, from the most vulnerable place in society, then this is absolutely a necessary question, especially for those of us who don't find ourselves on the margins. Because for those of us who don't find ourselves on the margins, it can be really easy to isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from the voices of those on the margins, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so we have to ask ourselves this question of when the prophets speak, will we listen? It's fascinating that Eli, who is this complex character who doesn't always do what's right, actually shows up as a positive example in this interaction with Samuel. Because his response isn't, listen, boy, do you know where you came from? Do you know who you'd be without me? But his response is, essentially, may it be so. Regardless of Samuel and his family's social or physical location, and regardless of the fact that it will cost him everything, he recognizes the voice of God through Samuel the prophet and listens to him. And so we ask ourselves, who are our prophets? And we ask when the prophets speak, will we listen? I think it's important at this point to to pause and to note that I don't actually think that every dissenting voice is a prophetic one, okay? (laughs) I don't think that everybody who's going against the grain is speaking on behalf of God. But that raises like this really serious question of like, well, then how in the world are we supposed to discern all of this, right? (laughs) And I think that this is where like us as as a church community steps into the gap. I think we have this very necessary role of community in our lives, Because perhaps you notice, there is an awful lot of information coming at us each and every day. All sorts of new ideas, all sorts of new perspectives, all sorts of new ways of thinking about things. And it can quickly feel overwhelming and exhausting trying to discern all of this on our own. But here's the good news. We don't have to discern all of this on our own. But what we get to do within this gift of community is we get to take these different ideas and we can essentially throw them against the wall and look at them together and ask questions like, how do you see this? How do you understand it? How do you interpret it? But more specifically, because we are a community of Christ, we get to throw these things up against the wall and ask the questions of how do you see this, understand it, interpret it, either aligning or disaligning with the way of Jesus. How do you see, understand, interpret this, aligning or disaligning with things like scripture and reason and tradition? And we don't have to discern as individuals the validity of these sorts of things, if they're prophetic or not, but we can do this together collectively. So perhaps that list of uh, prophets that I said I'm wrestling with, maybe you don't agree. Great. That's why we have community. (laughs) That's why we get to figure this thing out together. This is why we do our life together. Because we may throw one of these things up and you say, I don't see that. Or maybe you say, I do see that. And that moves us forward in that trajectory. There's so much coming at us. We don't have to figure this out on our own. But this is the gift that we have of community. So may we, uh, as uh, the community of Christ, may we have our hearts and our ears particularly attuned to the voices of those on the margins and the most vulnerable. May we have our hearts and our ears particularly attuned to recognize the word of the Lord coming from the prophets among us. May we, within community, discern if these are prophetic voices and what the appropriate uh, next step is for us together.
And ultimately, may we, when the prophets speak, listen. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, we are so grateful (laughs) most of the time uh, that you raise up prophets among us. (laughs) Uh, We're grateful for these people who, who speak your message to us, who challenge and critique the status quo, the way that things have been, and point us towards a better, more beautiful, more just future that Jesus often referred to as the kingdom of God. God, may we have ears to hear the voices of the prophets among us. May we have a discerning spirit among us as a community to sense your leading and your guiding and your shaping and your forming us. And God, when the prophets speak among us, may we listen, may we follow their voice and ultimately follow you into a better, more beautiful, more just future. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.